This podcast is intended for mature audiences. Listener discretion is advised. As things got more difficult, things got more dangerous. Pretty much all people who crossed had to keep moving east into environments that were much harsher. And they had to really put their life at risk because of the elements more than anything. From 1991 to 1993, the first 14 miles of the U.S.-Mexico border, that is from the Pacific Ocean inland, accounted for over half of the apprehensions of undocumented immigrants per year. And powerful people were beginning to take notice. After a drop in the mid-80s, the number of people entering the U.S. illegally is again on the rise. We see people crashing in the back door and the back windows, violating our laws, flouting our sovereignty, and ignoring our process. Because of this, the border and the politics around it were about to change dramatically. An intensifying debate was underway about how to manage this seemingly endless migration of people a debate that has only grown more acrimonious today. What is a um, chain link fence enclosed into a, um, a chamber on a concrete uh, floor represent to you? Is that a cage? It's a detention space, ma'am, that you know has existed for decades. Does it differ from the cages you put your dogs in when you let them stay outside? Is it, a, is it different? It, it, yes. In what sense? Uh, it's larger. It has facilities. Uh, it provides room to sit, to stand, to lay down. So did my dog's cage. The seeds of our current and increasingly harsh border policies were first planted by a powerful politician with hopes of re-election. All the way back in 1994. Economic downturn in California led to a significant anti-immigration backlash in the state, which was significantly fueled by political leadership at the time. That's Brown University political science professor Peter Andreas again. Governor Pete Wilson in California in the early 1990s was lagging in his efforts to become elected again. And he basically made the border and unauthorized migration sort of a cornerstone of his campaign. He tried to embarrass the federal government into doing more about the border. And he obtained footage from the border patrol of migrants rushing across the border through the port of entry south of San Diego. That became one of his most important campaign TV spots. They keep coming. Two million illegal immigrants in California. The federal government won't stop them at the border, yet requires us to pay billions to take care of them. Governor Pete Wilson sent the National Guard to help the border patrol. 
And so what happened is these dynamics at the state level, even the local level in Southern California, prompted the federal government, the Clinton administration, to rush in. In what was dubbed Operation Gatekeeper, then-President Bill Clinton authorized the largest militarization of the border in U.S. history, tripling the Immigration and Naturalization Services budget to a whopping $4.6 billion annually. The federal government launched Operation Gatekeeper. The idea of Gatekeeper here is to apply enough pressure to the San Diego area to move the alien traffic to the east. Moving people east takes them farther away from where they can find transportation, leaves them exposed in open areas longer, and gives officers a better chance of making arrests. We've got new fencing, we've got helicopters, we've got twice the agents, we've got the night scope, we've got everything that we need to do the job. This administration has taken a strong stand to stiffen the protection of our borders. And tonight I announce I will sign an executive order to deny federal contracts to businesses that hire illegal immigrants. We are a nation of immigrants, but we are also a nation of laws. It is wrong and ultimately self-defeating for a nation of immigrants to permit the kind of abuse of our immigration laws we have seen in recent years, and we must do more to stop it. Originally intended to fortify 66 miles from the Pacific Ocean into the mountains east of San Diego, Gatekeeper outfitted the notoriously underfunded Border Patrol with military hardware, Black Hawk helicopters, heat sensors, night vision telescopes, and computerized fingerprint equipment, among other advanced people-detecting tools. The initiative also authorized a dramatic increase in the number of Border Patrol agents working the region. The name of the strategy was prevention through deterrence. And so before the strategy was, people would come in, you try to round them up, send them back. Prevention through deterrence was big show force. They don't even come in at all. And at least for Clinton, it was mission accomplished. In a political sense, it succeeded in that Clinton actually won Orange County and had previously been a Republican stronghold. And part of it was because he had demonstrated a commitment to border enforcement. But for those on the ground, those like Eldon Kidd, this meant a new and challenging dynamic. And that's when they started beefing things up. And I remember hearing the pile drivers putting the posts into the ocean. And looking at that, thinking, hmm, things are going to change now. This is American Coyote. I'm your host, Andrea Lopez Villafania. In our fourth episode, Eldon moves east, finding new and more dangerous ways bring his customers across. Operation Gatekeeper brought massive change to the border, but it wasn't just the coyotes and their customers who were forced to adjust. My name is Jim Budd, and I'm a former senior patrol agent. I was assigned to Campo Station, which is the eastern 
most area of San Diego sector. Jen Budd saw firsthand how Operation Gatekeeper affected all aspects of the border, both for the coyotes and the agents in charge of stopping them. Sure, there was a lot of money put into Operation Gatekeeper, and a lot of political careers were made and saved off its promises. But like a lot of big government programs, once the money filtered down to the people on the ground, the effects were a little more complicated. We were supposed to be the first ones to get the 40 cal Beretta, which is a semi-automatic. But they couldn't afford the holster and the belts that went with it. So we had to use a customs issue, Smith & Wesson 357. So I had no vest, a 357 six-shot, a radio that usually didn't work out in the mountains, and a baton. And that is what I worked with every day. And a lot of times, yeah, we didn't have enough gas because our gas tanks ran out and we ran out of money. And so we would end up having to walk out to the border and just patrol the best we could. The increased patrols near urban areas did work as a deterrent. Less migrants crossed in and around San Diego, but those people still crossed just further east. In San Diego proper, they have put so many agents on the line that it makes it really hard for people to cross. But if you cross out in Campo, you're looking sometimes, depending on where you cross, you're looking at days and days of hiking. So there are literally thousands of bodies that have not been found out there. With this added enforcement leading to riskier treks along the California border, Eldon began moving east as well looking for new routes across. Well, the coyotes are not going to share their information with someone. That's their business. So I would just have to go and just do a recon, look around, spend the night, walk by myself, see if I had any resistance. And so it was um, just kind of a discovery each time, which I enjoyed quite a lot. I did get stopped and caught a few times. And I had my binoculars and my bird watching book. And, you know, who's the nut trying to identify owls in the desert? And I could speak well enough about birds and owls and scorpions with my infrared light so that I was believable to them. Like, well, that guy's a nut, harmless nut. It took time. But through this exhausting field research and a trial and error approach, Eldon was able to find the cracks in Operation Gatekeeper's new fortifications. So there was Tecate, 20 miles to the east, and that was still pretty open, but it meant longer walks. It meant colder temperatures and even hotter temperatures. So, Even that got burnt out, and then I just kept continuing east to San Luis Rio, Colorado, where there was an open sewer that was very unpleasant, but a sure thing. Now into Arizona, areas around Los Vidrios and Sonoyita also offered hard but reliable routes, with Sasabe, Lochil, and Nogales presenting new frontiers. There were other longer walks across the desert that I tried several times, but just too grueling. And usually the men that I brought, they would be helping me along because they were used to these long, hot walks in the desert. 
And they were saying, come on, hurry up, let's go. And, you know, I was just dragging behind because it was very tough. Some real high mountains and long walks. But it wasn't just the harsher desert terrain and temperatures on these new routes to which Eldon had to adjust. There were other, more deadly industries pushing east as well. On the other side of the river is where you stash the dry clothes because they're going to come across, they're going to be wet, and they're going to be muddy. So found a perfect little hiding place to put clothes. It looked like it had all actually been hollowed out into the reeds. I start to put it in there and I notice some bales of drugs. And I said, that doesn't belong to us. And it's not something that karma is going to bless us with. So let's just leave it. So I found a separate hiding place. Operation Gatekeeper had also disrupted the trade routes of the drug cartels. And Eldon was right not to tempt fate that afternoon. A few days after the incident, Eldon was sitting in a Mexican restaurant, having lunch with a few people he had just crossed, when a stranger sat down at their table. His tattoos told Eldon everything he needed to know. The stranger worked for the cartel. What happened is the next week, when we came back, the guy who was in charge of things down there said, you did the right thing. What right thing? We saw you. The 30-06 has a really, really powerful scope. And you're lucky because they were instructed to shoot you if you take the bales out. So, well, lucky me. Afford Anything talks about how to avoid common pitfalls, how to refine your mental models, and how to think about how to think. Paula, while certainly you can mess up on a million dollars a year, it is far less likely than it is on $30,000 a year. Right. I would meet wonderful people that were struggling with a budget that was super tight. It was 100%. You need to make more money. Make smarter choices and build a better life. Afford Anything, wherever you listen. As Operation Gatekeeper took effect, Eldon continued to move eastward along the border, always innovating to stay one step ahead of an ever-increasing Border Patrol presence. He had already built a reputation as a crafty, trustworthy, and reliable coyote. But he was still learning new lessons, sometimes the hard way. In Algodonis, there is a canal called the All-American Canal. It was dug out, I think, in the 20s to connect Colorado River with farmland. So on one side, there's a huge berm of sand, then there's the river before. The berm of sand and the river are both on U.S. property. I had a camp set there, and I was going into Algodonis to get some Chinese girls that I had already stationed at a hotel. So I was lugging life jackets and wetsuits at about 8 p.m. at night, and I crossed over into Mexico 
and the Immigration Border Patrol was waiting for me. I don't know how. I ran back down the berm of sand with a posse in tow. I jumped into the river in October, very freezing cold, and I stayed in the water that whole time, up underneath the reeds, like the baby Moses in the, in the reeds, they're hiding out. They kept talking to me in Spanish, saying, we know you're getting cold. Te vas a morir, te vas a hogar. Come out. All we want to do is help you and get you warm. And I didn't answer them because they were sure that I was Spanish speaking. And I waited there until change of shift, till six o'clock in the morning in not freezing water, but about 60 degree water. And I could barely move. I could just barely move at daylight to get out of there and get back into town. I eventually picked them up at the hotel and crossed them at a different point in the river. And after that trip, might be egotistical, but I thought, if there's a heaven, I made it. This is my ticket, because this was extraordinary. The effort and pain and suffering I had to do to get them across and not give up and just leave them abandoned in Mexico. Back home, Eldon's wife and his five children were well aware of the toll these new, riskier crossings were having on him. I know he was gone a lot, and I thought that he was being risky, and he caused my mother a lot of worry. So I wished that he wouldn't have done it, but I knew that there was nothing I could say to make him not do it. That's Eileen Kidd again, Eldon's oldest daughter. We all knew that this was his personality. He had to make money for the family on his own terms, from his own brawn, his own wit, his own volition. He had to do it his way. We all knew that a food on our table came at a great sacrifice and time commitment on his part because he didn't have a regular nine to five. So he had to be creative. I called home one time and he answered the phone, which was rare because he was rarely home. And I said, hi dad, how are you doing? Oh, I just got finished swimming through the river of poop. That's what he said. And I don't know which river it was, maybe Rio Grande or something. And I said, I wish you wouldn't do that anymore. You know how that would break mom's heart if you got caught. He said, well, you want to go to that fancy schmancy university, don't you? Well, I got to swim through the river of poop. I've been up for 48 hours and my feet are swollen and put Vaseline all over my entire body. I'm going to go to sleep now. I'm going to hand over the phone to mom. Nathan Kidd, Eldon's youngest son, also remembers the family's concerns about their dad's increasingly hazardous vocation. We've always, you know, pleaded with him not not to do it. Please don't do it anymore. And, you know, at times he'd say, okay, but I think the the emotions and are, are too powerful. They just kept pulling him back. And he doesn't have a sense of fear or a sense of, I shouldn't do that. You know, if he feels that something is needs to be done, he, ju he just does it. Despite their best efforts to pull Eldon away from the coyote life, the family instead adapted to it, learning to normalize it. 
thanks to their mom Janice's leadership at home, they built a bond with each other to cope, leaning heavily on their Mormon faith. She was more the the driving force for the religiosity, and she did try to enact discipline to the best of her ability. Now, like, my, my brothers and sisters are all very, very good people. I mean, straight arrow. I mean, I just had great examples all, all the way around. So she didn't really have to discipline. We were church every single Sunday, which consisted of a three-hour block. On Tuesday nights, we would go to Mutual Night, a loose religious program mixed with Boy Scouts. Um, on Mondays, we do something called a family home evening night where you kind of have just time together as a family. So there's a lot of benefits to growing up in a religion like that. Given everything he endured to provide for his family, Eldon began developing his own version of faith, one that didn't necessarily coincide with the families. My dad's take on religion was if it supported your core beliefs, then he supported it, and he supported it for you. He never badmouthed it, but I always knew that it, the confines of religion couldn't really hold him. Nature was his religion. At that time, I was fully graduated from the Mormon religion. I felt I had my diploma, I served my time, thank you very much, and let's move on. I spent too many nights underneath the stars. It's too big, it's too mysterious, and it's almost annoying when someone tells me they know how it really is. For the first time in his life, Eldon felt content with his beliefs, with his business, and with his family. He was making good money, he was his own boss, and he was satiating his need for constant adventure. However, as the old saying goes, all good things must come to an end. And so it was with Eldon Kidd that the good times were about to end. Regal was a powerful rich man in Mexico who had a clothing store. And my dad um, did odd jobs for Regal down in Mexico. Well, I, I passed a housekeeper for this gentleman. And when she made it across and she told stories of, you know, it was fairly pleasant, fairly easy, I was recontacted by him. And he was requesting that I take different kinds of merchandise into Mexico in a motorhome. And then his family would often use the motorhome when I arrived in Mexico to do an excursion, go play around, go camping. And I would pick it up and I would drive back. And I made two trips like that. And I was getting paid pretty well for it. Regal asked my dad to go to the LA Garment District to buy a lot of cheap clothing to bring back to his store in Mexico. And to make the trip more comfortable for my dad, he offered to lend his motorhome 
I know that he was making pretty good money with the, the clothing, um, watches, perfumes, all kinds of things like that, that he was taking in to Mexico. But I wasn't aware of the, the backload. It was that backload that would turn Eldon's world upside down, spinning him down a new path, a darker path, one where survival was his only option. Eldon Kidd had agreed to transport merchandise from Mexico to L.A. using a wealthy associate's RV. After all, he was heading south anyway. So, why not help a friend and make a little extra money in the meantime? But it was on this trip that Eldon learned a hard lesson about who exactly should earn his trust. Nineteen ninety-four, September fifteenth, in Toluca, Mexico. I was driving back from a tour with a motorhome, where I was on the side of the road to do a repair, and the cops came, and uh, they went directly to a hidden compartment in the motorhome that I did not know about that was fiberglassed over. And I thought, oh my gosh, they're gonna tear this thing apart and I'm gonna be responsible. And that's when they found some bales of marijuana and I was arrested for it. At that time, because of my upbringing and so forth, marijuana was like the devil. I wouldn't move it, I wouldn't touch it, I wouldn't have anything to do with it. It was evil. So I was put into Mexican prison. For the first time, Eldon was in over his head, arrested for drug trafficking and thrown into the unfamiliar, violent, and corrupt world of the Mexican justice system. The first part of it was I was held at a private location, possibly someone's house and subjected to some torture to confess. But more than that, they wanted to know where it came from, who had it, phone numbers, but I had nothing to give them. So that was traumatic. What kind of torture? Mm, well, I don't want to, yeah. you know, just fill it in later because my little boy's there and all Got that. It. The list of unimaginable abuse Eldon suffered in the early days following his arrest is long and shocking. The details of his torture were outlined in a letter his lawyer later submitted to a district court. They included the use of a plastic bag placed over his head, causing him to lose consciousness, being stripped of his clothing, sprayed with water, and shocked 
with a cattle prod on his testicles. Being tied up and beaten on several occasions. Being starved. Being... Without going into further and more graphic detail, Eldon experienced some of the worst known forms of physical and psychological torture during his earliest days of capture. Bruised and beaten, but still alive, Eldon was transferred into a more formal facility. Once his abusers were satisfied, he wasn't withholding any information. From there, I was transported to Almaloy de Juarez, which is the maximum security. Years later, Almoloya de Juarez would be the prison that drug cartel leader El Chapo would call home until he infamously escaped through a tunnel burrowed beneath his shower. 2,500 people, most of them criminals, some of them violent, some of them mentally ill. It was a horror show. It was a circus and a horror show. Back home, Eldon's arrest sent shockwaves through the family, and his wife Janice was once again forced to take command, this time under impossible conditions. Eldon's youngest daughter, Tammy, remembers this clearly. It was hard for me to process it being young, and I just saw, you know, my brothers and sisters just completely melting down. And my mom was always strong. I don't think I've ever saw her lose it at all. But to see my siblings, who were like my second moms and second dads, just totally broken, that's what broke me more. Nathan remembers the family keeping Eldon's incarceration a secret, something they were all well-versed in by this point. We had to be ashamed of it. Nobody was allowed to know that he was in jail. So from this point forward, we were pretending as if my father was always on another trip, another trip. My mother uh, held things together. She continued to work hard. She rallied her resources. She reached out to her family to get some additional financial support. She's an incredible woman. I mean, the amount of responsibility that was dumped on her lap was huge. And of course, Eldon's family was left grappling with the circumstances of their father's arrest. Was he really unaware of the marijuana stuffed in the walls of the RV he was driving? Would he have taken that kind of risk for an easy, lucrative payday? I think he would. I don't know. Camera's rolling on this one. <laughs> he liked adventure. He liked to be the hero. I took cues from my mother on that because she said, I asked Dad if he knew about the drugs, and he said, I'm guilty of many things, but I'm not guilty of this one. And... She believed him, and I believed her. And so I felt an injustice. I felt like he was wronged. I felt like someone had stole my dad from me. And I was heartbroken. Because without him around, even though he wasn't around very much, he's very much a 
a shot of personality and the lifeblood of the fun and the color of our childhood. It wasn't just his family feeling indignant. Eldon was too, incarcerated, alone, and knowing very little Spanish. Eldon had nothing but time to sit with his thoughts. Like anyone wrongly accused, he began wrestling with his fate, seeking impossible answers, and trying to find someone to blame for a crime he says he never committed. Naturally, his thoughts turned to his employer that day. Why they just singled me out and went directly to the spot is kind of a mystery to me to this day. I think that it was more than likely a disagreement in payment between he and whoever he was doing business with. That's my idea, although I guess we'll never know. But if there's a disgruntled employee, I think that he would probably say, catch this motorhome and this is where it's at. He sent his lawyers to the prison to find out what I had said. He asked for the record of what I have said and what I did and would I sign this paper to say, you know, I think he wanted to know if I mentioned him. And then he said, don't worry, I'm going to get you out by way of his lawyer. But then I never heard from them again. Now trapped inside a maximum security prison in Mexico, accused of a serious crime, and cut off from his family, Eldon Kidd was in hell. And for the first time in his life, he couldn't see a way out. On the next episode of American Coyote... I learned a lesson. There's really no tough guys. Eldon gets an education in a new type of human survival. I had to be creative. I had to give haircuts. I had to teach English lessons. Anything that I could do to endear myself to the population because they were tapped into family support. So if somebody brought in an extra burrito, you know, it could be mine. I couldn't have survived without the help of the other prisoners. While his family wrestles with his absence. I thought that he would come home in 10 years. 10 years was a lifetime. 10 years was a death. Like I said, it was, I had to emotionally deal with it like I was never going to see him again. And he tries to find a way back. I was picked up and I thought actually that maybe I was going to be taken somewhere and shot. And I was between two guys with weapons and I was thinking, well, I would think I should jump out, you know, at least take my chances. American Coyote is created and produced by Eli Chorus and Joshua Schaefer of Pegalo Pictures. This episode is written by Alvin Cowan, Eli Chorus, and Joshua Schaefer. Executive produced by Jason Hoke and produced by Andrew Richards of Imperative Entertainment. And produced by Alvin Cowan, Original music for the series is composed by Joshua Klebe. Assistant editing by Max Drankpole. Sound recording by Nick Sinakis and Matt Stouter. Sound editing by Joshua Schaefer and Nick Sinakis. Sound design and sound mixing by Craig Platty. 
Poster design and graphics by Jeff Quinn. Production legal by Sean Fawcett of Raymond Legal PC and Davis Wright Tremaine, LLP. Host record by Deborah Reeves and Signature Sound in San Diego, California. Please subscribe, download, and share these episodes and follow us on social media for extra content and updates. I'm your host, Andrea Lopez Villafaña. Thanks again for listening.